Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Building a more just, equitable society means examining different systems in our country. Today, where we live, we focus on local efforts to reform the justice system, specifically the jury selection process. My guest today is State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson. His 2019 decision in State v. Holmes led to the creation of a task force to study the jury system and ways to eliminate racial bias. The task force released its report earlier this year. Coming up, we hear from some task force members, including attorney Preston Tisdale. And later we hear how other states have approached jury selection and questions of racial bias. First, I want to welcome to the show on Zoom, Connecticut State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson. Justice Robinson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, and you can join us, too, if you have a question about jury selection. Maybe you've served on a jury. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Justice Robinson, you made history when you became the first black chief justice in Connecticut's history. Uh, What motivated you to create this task force, even before State v. Holmes? What did you observe in your legal career? Well, as an attorney, um, as an attorney of color, I noticed, and it it took me a while to actually see it, uh, to make it conscious that it was happening. But attorneys would actually strike black uh, people off the juries that I was picking, um, and that was actually pretty devastating. And I would fight like crazy to try to keep them on the jury, but often the judge would accept the challenge and would remove the person uh, from the jury. I, I believe uh, that the individuals who did that thought that somehow the black jurors biased towards my case because like them, I was black. Um, but I also noticed that uh, they wouldn't strike white jurors or they wouldn't uh, be happy with me striking white jurors because they're white. Um, so it's an interesting problem. I mentioned the case State v. Holmes. Uh, tell us about that. Holmes uh, involved a, a, a black defendant, and uh, there was this one gentleman on the jury who had, uh, he was an African-American gentleman. He had a background where he was a social worker, and he actually told the prosecutor during the process that he didn't think that uh, the prosecutor would accept him as a juror because of who he was, uh, and in no small part because he was black. Um, it turns out that he was right, but it, it, let me just say this, it wasn't pervasive racism. It wasn't that kind of a thing. It was that the prosecutor felt that because of the life experience of this black man, he would identify with the black defendant in a way that would uh, make him biased towards the black defendant, and he didn't want him on the jury. 
We're going to be getting into more about how uh, jurors are picked uh, later in the program. But when we think about history, um, from your experience uh, as an attorney, but going even further, when we think about how jurors, juries were created and how black people were treated, uh, tell us a little bit more about the Kentucky v. Batson case. Okay, but before I can talk about Kentucky, uh, the, uh, the Batson case, I need to talk about Strata versus West Virginia. Okay. And in that case, this was uh, shortly after the Civil War. Blacks were you know, freed and they were giving all the same constitutional rights as whites were. However, in the state of West Virginia, there was a state law that blacks could not serve on the jury. That case was eventually appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court said that blacks have a constitutional right to sit on juries. If you go about 100 years after that, you end up with uh, the Batson case. And then Batson, the prosecutor, struck all the black jurors on a case because the defendant was black. Um, that case also went to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, that is wrong, too. Uh, defendants have a constitutional right to have a jury of their peers, and jurors have a constitutional right to sit on a jury, regardless of their, their color. And so you have the situation where um, the United States Supreme Court says that this is a constitutional right, yet it still happens in our system. It's quite common for uh, minority individuals to be stricken from a jury if the, in a criminal case if the defendant is black, and in a civil case if one of the parties is black. You talked about implicit bias, and, and that can be tricky because how do we uh, talk about maybe some bias we have that we don't really understand at times that we have that bias? Right. We all have um, biases. Um, and some of the biases, you know, you, you might have a bias towards the New York Yankees. You know, if you if you live in the southwestern Connecticut, you probably are a Yankee fan. Or if you live in the north part of Connecticut, you're probably a Red Sox fan. But if, if, have you ever asked yourself why? Why are you a fan of that particular baseball team? And most people wouldn't know. They would say my parents were or my grandparents were. And and I just like that team. But if you say, is the team better than the other team? You say, yeah, uh, even though statistically they may not be. So we all have these biases. Uh, and the biases aren't, they don't exclude things like gender and race and things of that nature. But once you know about the bias, you can do something about it. And that's part of what this task force is trying uh, to, uh, again, with the recommendations, um, how to not only train juror, jurors about implicit bias, but attorneys as well. Uh, before, again, we get to the recommendations of this task force, uh, you know, I was struck by a letter that you wrote to your judicial staff uh, just last summer after the killing of George Floyd, where you talked about, I wanted to quote, people who do not believe that we have a racial injustice problem are entitled their own to their own opinions, but they are not entitled to their own facts. Simply put, the facts are with me. I love this country enough to speak out when it's not living up to its ideals. I love this country despite its imperfections, but that does not mean I'm willing to accept them. In fact, I'm ready, willing, and able to do the work to eradicate them. So when we think about the justice system and giving everyone a fair and just trial, uh, this work that the task force is doing gets to the heart of that. It does. It does. Um, and I appreciate uh, the, the fact that you, you know about that particular letter. That was a sort of a difficult thing to do. Um, 2020 was disruption that we may not have wanted, but it may have been disruption we needed. And, and by that, I mean, it got us to focus on some of the inequities in our judicial systems. 
after the George Floyd incident, over half the chief justices of various states and the Supreme Courts of various states all made public statements about the inequities that are currently existing in our system. And we've all pledged to work to eradicate them. You're hearing Chief Justice Richard Robinson of the Connecticut Supreme Court as we talk about this work that a task force has done to look at jury selection process in our state uh, and to look at how racial bias uh, plays a factor in that, ways to prevent that moving forward. You can join us if you have a question or comment for Justice Robinson, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So many of us, uh, unless we've been called for jury duty and been chosen, we don't really understand how the process works. So currently, Justice Robinson, who is and is not eligible to serve on a jury? Well, in Connecticut, you're you're eligible once you're at the age of maturity, which is 18 years old. Um, there's various ways that we find people for jury duty. It could be driver's license. It could be uh, telephone books. It can be uh, a number of different uh, sources. Once you are put on that list, then you will receive a phone call and you get to serve jury duty. And usually people uh, get that notice and they see it with dread. And one of the things we're going to try to educate people about is, I, in my experience of being a trial judge, which I was a trial judge for uh, seven years, every jury trial I've ever done, after it was over, people were so glad that they did jury duty. They were actually happy um, that they, they had that experience. Uh, one of the problems with jury duty, as as it is now, is we've noticed that there is a uh, a problem with some people aren't showing up on the jury list like they should, or if they are on the list, then they don't get into our courtrooms uh, as much as they should be on in the courtrooms. So we start looking at those various problems, see what is going on. Uh, when you talk about eligibility, one of the problems is that uh, in Connecticut. If you have been convicted of a felony, you can't sit uh, for jury duty until seven years after you've served your full sentence. Um, and that could be very problematic. I, I think everyone should have a chance to actually serve jury duty. Um, also, if you're uh, a resident alien versus a citizen of the United States, you can't sit jury duty. And we ask that the legislature look at that and possibly make some changes. When you mention resident aliens, so these are individuals who have their green cards and they're waiting to be naturalized? Yes, they were not citizens of the United States yet. And when the task force was doing its work, when we think about uh, the people who are ultimately selected and those who are dismissed, uh, what does the data tell you? Well, the data says, the data tells us that um, minorities in particular aren't serving in aren't actually getting into the courtroom as much as they should be. And so people have a right to have a jury of their peers. They're not getting that right um, because those people are missing from our population of jurors. And we're trying everything we can to make sure that that system is changed so that people do have this constitutional right of having juries that look and sound and talk like they do. When we think about uh, the time commitment that some uh, juries have before them, that can be a deterrent, Justice Robinson. Maybe people feel like they can't leave work uh, or have the ability to not be paid full time while they're on a jury. Yes, um, and that can be a, a problem for people, especially people who are in the lower economic wrong, you know, uh, lower economic sectors of our 
our, our society. Um, so we're looking at ways to deal with that. And one is we're, we need to increase the amount that we pay people um, when their employer can't or won't pay them for when they come in to do jury duty. You know, if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, it's kind of hard to say, um, I can take the time out to do jury duty. Uh, that being said, not all trials are weeks long. Some trials are a couple of days long. Um, we can get very good at making sure that we have the right people sitting at the right trial. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are, uh, let's say, 70 years old in Connecticut. You automatically are out um, after you're 70. But a lot of people want to be act productive citizens. And so we're saying that maybe we should get rid of that particular provision so that people can, if they want to opt out, if they want to get out of jury duty, they can actually say, no, I don't want to serve, but don't automatically remove people from the jury list. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Connecticut State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson. Coming up, we're going to learn more about the recommendations of this jury selection task force and ways to eliminate a racial bias in the process. And we take your calls and questions, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A special task force examined racial bias in the jury selection process for criminal trials in Connecticut. We're talking about the task force and its findings with my guest, Chief Justice Richard Robinson. Uh, before we hear from one of the task force members, uh, Justice Robinson, I wanted to share a tweet we got from a listener. Joe writes, I was an alternate for a major case in Connecticut. Once released, I found it frustrating reading comments from people who had not heard one minute out of a week of testimony and evidence. Human judgment is an emotional thing, and people can easily make up their minds. It isn't that I think juries are infallible. I realize there are major problems with the systems as they are. I don't know what the exact solution is. How do you respond, Joe? Well, I think Joe sounds like he would have been a perfect candidate to be a juror. He's, he's absolutely right. Uh, humans aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. And that's why we have a jury system. So that instead of having one person sit there and judge a character of a person and judge the facts, we have juries of six or 12 who actually all get together and you have this collective mind with uh, collective data uh, looking at the data and, and trying to figure out what really happened there. And they work towards a resolution, I think, in a far better way than an individual can. And so, yes, it's it's flawed. It never will be perfect, but it's the best of all imperfect systems. We're going to talk more about the task force, the recommendations uh, just ahead here on Where We Live. But Sean's calling in from New Haven. Sean, what did you want to share? Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, thank you to Justice Robinson for addressing this important issue. Um, So I'm a trial lawyer, and I recently, at the end of 2019, had a trial in New Haven. Uh, We had a six-week jury selection with interviewing a lot of potential jurors. And what I noticed during that process was that New Haven um, was really underrepresented in terms of the percentage of veneer people that were from New Haven, as opposed to the surrounding areas, uh, Woodbridge, Bethany, etc., And I know Matt Blumenthal has been 
doing, Representative Matt Blumenthal has been doing a lot of work um, trying to make sure that there's geographic representation on veneer panels. And my question is, is that something the task force is, is considering and, and what types of um, potential resolutions um, have been considered? Um, thank you, Sean, for that question. That is actually one of the things we did look at. Um, and if you look at the jury task force report, that's um, actually covered there. We're looking to amend section 51-220 of the Connecticut General Statutes, and that affects the, the method of summoning jurors. Um, it's, it's really interesting um, that we have the data to do this. Um, and that data is actually pretty easy to, to get. We have that data. But we're looking for not only that kind of data, but we're trying to make sure that our entire process is a data-driven approach. And so we're actually trying to get more data than we've had before. Uh, we're looking for uh, data on why people were released from jury service, why uh, people come from certain areas, why people don't come from other areas. And so a big part of this report is to get the data to drive down into those situations where we start seeing these anomalies, where people are from one area and not another area, people are one color, not another color, or gender, or uh, anything of those nature, of that nature. So um, you should also know that Matt Blumenthal actually was on the Jury Selection Task Force, uh, and he was a big help. So. Uh, one of the things that the recommendation, one of the changes we recommend the legislature makes is to uh, make sure that we change the system so that proportions of jurors coming from the various areas are changed to reflect the population of the JD, the, jurisdic uh, the uh, jurisdictional that the court is in. Again, you're hearing Chief Justice Richard Robinson here on Where We Live. We're learning about the work of the Jury Selection Task Force. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Another member of the task force uh, is Preston Tisdale, a partner with firm Koskoff, Koskoff, and Beter. Uh, Preston's joining us on the phone. Good morning, Preston. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I should let our listeners know that you spent, I believe, almost 30 years practicing criminal defense law. You directed the Fairfield Judicial Branch Public Defender's Office, and you also served as the first director of special public defenders for the state of Connecticut. On this task force, you were part of the Implicit Bias Subcommittee. So let's talk about, uh, when we think about jury selection, how implicit bias plays into selecting jurors, Preston. Sure. Well, uh, first, I have to applaud the work that uh, Chief Justice Robinson did in terms of convening this effort. And uh, in the whole implicit bias area is an area of which he is expert. Uh, the fact is, the concern is that implicit bias can be as damaging to our justice system as purposeful discrimination. And the particular area that I worked on uh, was the Batson Working Group. Uh, and that particular group worked on specifically on the challenge, the Batson versus Kentucky challenges, which then uh, morphed into a different uh, uh, iteration in Connecticut, but uh, that uh, put forth the same values and desire to uh, see non-discriminatory factors lead to the selection of jurors. Mm -hmm. 
You, when we think about the jury selection process, uh, Justice Robinson shared an anecdote when he would see how uh, black individuals would be dismissed uh, uh, in his legal career and some of the reasons behind that. So when attorneys are allowed to challenge a particular juror, can you talk about, talk about peremptory challenges? What is that exactly? How does that um, involve implicit bias? Right. Well, attorneys uh, and the defendants through their attorneys have the right to peremptorily challenge a certain number of jurors and to provide no reason. Uh, In other words, they can challenge those jurors without cause. What the problem with Batson uh, was that you could uh, uh, basically there was only a requirement that once challenged that the attorney who had exercised that challenge, if he thought they were exercising that challenge on racially discriminatory, uh, for racially discriminatory reasons, they only had to provide you with a neutral, racial neutral, uh, uh, reason for the, uh, exclusion of that juror. And as one of my partners has, uh, often said, any attorney who could not provide a race-neutral reason for the exclusion of a juror really should have his license lifted. Now, that's tongue-in-cheek, but the problem is what it's pointing out is how easy it was to provide a race-neutral reason. So that aspect, it it turned Batson into basically a toothless uh, uh, weapon against uh, discrimination in the selection of jurors. So uh, you, you can either remove a juror, for, move to remove a juror for cause, or with the, for a peremptory challenge. What we studied are ways to begin to limit the ability of attorneys to utilize discriminatory reasons for removing those juries. And, and, and what we did, jurors, we uh, uh, relied significantly on Rule 37 from the state of Washington. Tell us more about uh, this Washington model. Well, what it did was it it began to establish specific ground rules. So, and what we've done now, once the objection is is lodged, uh, the the person exercising the peremptory challenge has to explain the reason that they are uh, exercising that peremptory challenge once they're being challenged on the basis that they are making a racially discriminatory um, decision. And the Rule 37 uh, sets out a range of reasons which are not acceptable. So there have been many excuses which have been used in the past, such as a person came from a high crime area or a person uh, had a relative who had been, uh, uh, you know, had some contact with the criminal justice system. There were many tangential reasons which were used as ruses for uh, excluding a juror, which really had no bearing on the ability of that juror to be fair and impartial. So, uh, Justice Robinson, if you could pick up on that when we think about the way jurors are challenged, uh, Preston mentioning for cause, so if someone is seen as unfit, but again, a peremptory challenge, thinking about how lawyers may look at, think of subjective or intuitive reasons why someone might not be a good fit. And so when we think about the work the task force is doing, recommendations to prevent that from happening in the future. Yes. Um Batson uh, uh, is absolutely correct. Um, 
the problem with Batson is that it requires for you to show that the person is basically racist. No judge is going to want to call the attorneys who are before them uh, racist and, and vice versa. So this appears in, in other ways. You might see that a, a, a person of color is challenged because they have a, uh, a lower educational uh, background. Um, yet when you talk to the person, they're actually quite intelligent. Um, so what do you do about that situation where a person of color is being struck, um, where the other people aren't being struck for, for the exact same reason? So getting to the, the core of what's happening there is, is really difficult. You're losing black jurors, but no one is saying I'm striking this juror because that person's black. That, that just doesn't happen. Um, so we have to figure out ways to get around that. Um, and I think one of the best things we can do, quite frankly, and it's something I've been trying to do a lot of, is training all our stakeholders, um, people who come into our court systems, use our court systems, about implicit bias. Because I honestly believe that most people in this country are fantastic people who uh, are not racist. They're, they just aren't. Um, this is a great country to live in. However, we do have a problem. And I think the problem is this implicit bias thing where people make these assumptions based on stereotypes, even though they reject the stereotype itself. Um, and so uh, if you look at things like in our court system, you have disparate sentencing. Um, a black individual will be sentenced to a longer sentence than a white individual. The same crime, same criminal background, same everything. You know, how do you explain that? I don't think the judge who did the sentencing is a racist. Um, and so we have to address these problems. And I think the, this jury task force has done an amazing job of helping do that. Again, you can join our conversation as we talk about the work of this task force, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, David's calling in. David, are you still there? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I am here. Hi. Hi listen, so uh, about 10 years ago, I was lucky enough to serve as an alternate on a jury. And I agree uh, with the judge that, you know, it did a lot to dissuade the illusions of, you know, how jury trials go, um, you know, from a lifetime of Perry Mason and, you know, L.A. Law and all that kind of stuff. So that was, I totally 100% agree that the experience was 100% worthwhile. Now, my question being, though, is that I'm a teacher, so I happened to be on jury duty during the summer. So it didn't affect my ability to get paid because I was off anyway. But even if the trial did happen during the school year, um, there's an option for me to select jury duty, and I get paid anyway. Is there not a statute somewhere where employers are required to provide a certain amount of paid jury duty days for for employees that need to do that? Chief Robinson? The, the, the problem is the employer is responsible, but the, the, the problem really is that are they responsible enough? In other words, is there a big enough commitment on the employer's part to help our judicial system work? And we think that there isn't. And that's one of the changes that we're asking for um, in legislative changes that we did ask for. And I, I'm glad that this, this listener talked about uh, doing jury duty and being a teacher, because quite frankly, I think one of the best things that a teacher can do is go to their class and tell them about this experience of serving jury duty or uh, going through the jury duty, uh, jury selection process. I think that's a wonderful educational moment. People need to know more about how our systems work. But to get back to the well, what he was talking about, yes, we'd like to expand uh, the situations where an employer would have to pick up 
uh, paying the people who come to serve jury duty. Uh, you've had some moments in your career where the fact that you are an African-American man serving as a judge helps give people some confidence. People who may have a, a distrust of the system, Justice Robinson, may have been treated poorly uh, by some institution. When they see you on the bench, how does that impact their feeling of that maybe they will have a fair shot? Um I've actually been amazed by that. I've, I've had defendants come in um, during an arraignment and look and, and see me on the bench and and sort of are surprised by that. Um, when I was sitting in New Britain, uh, there were attorneys going through the voir dire process. I was the presiding judge of civil there. And they came in to tell me that they were having a problem with one of, one of the potential jurors. And so I asked them what the problem was. They said, well, she doesn't believe in serving jury duty because there are no blacks, um, you know, uh, judges and prosecutors and uh, people in the system. And so they said, well, we want you to talk to her because you're African-American and you are the presiding judge. And so I went out on the bench in my robe and she looked at me and she was quite surprised to see a, a black man in a robe um, in New Britain, and I was the uh, presiding judge, which means that I was the head judge of civil trials. And uh, I just had this wonderful chat with her, and I explained to her that we need her to come in to do jury duty in order for people to have a jury of their peers. And she went from not wanting to do jury duty to very badly wanting to do jury duty. So the diversity on the bench and diversity of judicial employees makes a huge difference. Um, people start to see that the world inside the court system looks like the world outside. Again, you're hearing Connecticut State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson here on Where We Live. Also with us is a member of this jury selection task force, Preston Tisdale, a partner with the firm Koskoff, Koskoff and Beter. Uh, Preston, uh, throughout the hour, we've talked about some of the reform proposals uh, that Chief Robinson, Chief Justice Robinson mentioning improving the jury summoning process that to help reach underrepresented communities, tracking the type and, and numbers of jury challenges by lawyers, training jurors on unconscious bias and how that can distort judgment. And I'm wondering, um, you know, when we think about implementation, are there any parts of the, the recommendations that you feel will be challenging? Uh, well, change is always challenging. So uh, all of it will be challenging to the extent that uh, it's it's a new way of uh, approaching the, the subject. That being said, I think there's a tremendous amount of goodwill to uh, get the job done. There's a recognition that we have a problem, and certainly it was uh, very uh, eloquently ex expressed in State versus Holmes. Uh, I would point, like, going to the first, matter that you discussed uh, that uh, my colleague uh, Matt Blumenthal worked on in terms of the summoning. That's a particular area which is very critical. Uh, I, I, I have the, the benefit or, which, or the misfortune of practicing before the Batson ruling. And uh, I would have a situation, number one, there would be very few persons of color who would even come in on panels. And unfortunately, there were some uh, prosecutors at that time who thought it was good prosecuting just to knock off every uh, black who the, of the few who were on that panel. 
since that time, uh, after Batson, that changed. But then there was a period where Connecticut went to uh, uh, setting up a program of one-day exposure for jurors to be selected as jurors. Uh, And it was a pilot program in Bridgeport. uh, The Fairfield Judicial District was one of those districts where it was tried. Instantly after that, you had some of the most representative juries I had ever seen. However, through the years, that declined. And one of the things that the task force looked at, what could be the reasons? And a lot of it, uh, there was sociological, economic, just as we see more uh, people, black and brown people, who are suffering from COVID, not because of any genetic reason, but social economic. And so one of the, the, the fixes that the task force put into play, as Chief Justice Robinson mentioned, was to see that there would be representative yield from the urban area, so that let's say in the uh, Fairfield Judicial District area, you have Bridgeport. You want to make sure that your yield that comes from that area uh, equals the yield of jurors that come from the surrounding suburban communities. And I think there's there's some very good solutions that have been uh, recommended by the task force to ameliorate that problem. And on every level, as I said, uh, with the working group that we had, the main thing in terms of Batson, the biggest challenge is it's tough to uh, get people to stop doing what they've been doing. Uh, And I'm not even talking about from a discriminatory aspect. I'm talking about from habits. And what the, the recommendations have done, they've really put people on notice that they have to think about this situation differently in order to make uh, to move the needle in a positive direction. Anya is calling in from Cromwell. Anya, what's your question or comment? Yes, good morning. And uh, I do want to say hello to uh, your honor and attorney Tizio. Um I was also a member of the task force but I am now also a member of the Division of Criminal Justice Community Engagement Board. So my question was, um, how do you think the recommendations that we made with the task force can work together with the Community Engagement Board? Obviously, jury selection is just one part of the process, so I would love to hear from either of you if you had suggestions on how we can make implementation change for the uh, criminal justice system as a whole. Justice Robinson? Um, Hang on. The, the part of the, what the jury task force is doing is that they recommend that we do uh, more community outreach. That the that we um, I'm, I'm sorry, judicial hasn't been very good at uh, really connecting with community in ways that we should, and we're getting going to get better at, at that. We're going to actually work with, uh, for example, work with the affinity bars. The affinity bars or uh, bars in Connecticut would be like the uh, Crawford Law Association, the uh, South uh, Asian Pacific uh, uh, bar, but the various bars. Um, and so we're going to start working with them in ways because they're often in contact with the folks that we need to get in contact to, uh, with, people like the NAACP, in order to figure out some of these um, inequities in the system. Again, you're listening to Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I want to thank Preston Tisdale for joining us. He was a, a member of this jury selection task force and a partner with firm Koskoff, Koskoff & Beter. Preston, thank you. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Anya, for calling in. She worked very hard on the task force as well. And we're going to thank you, Chief Justice Robinson, for your leadership. We're thank gonna, you. Con- we're going to continue hearing from Justice Robinson right after the break. And we're going to take a broader look at how this conversation is playing out in other states. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Connecticut State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson. Uh, someone called in earlier, wasn't able to stay on the line, Justice Robinson, but Jessica wanted to share. She was on a federal grand jury 18 months. She was required to use her vacation time after the five days and were exhausted, and this took a big toll on her family, and it felt unfair. It left a bad taste in her mouth about ever being on a jury again. So when we think about the recommendations of this task force and compensation, uh, what is recommended? Well, uh, I'm glad you you mentioned that story, um, because jury duty can be pretty tough on a family economically. Um, One of the biggest changes that we're recommending as far as compensation of jurors is that currently uh, full-time jurors are they're paid uh, the regular wages for the first five days of jury service. Um, after that, they're paid $50 per day. That's, that's what the current situation is. Our proposed change is that jurors will receive at least the minimum wage for jury service beginning on the sixth day. There's also some other things uh, that we're trying to get, including traveling expenses and childcare um, and reimbursement up to $20 or more um, um, those are the kind of initiatives that we're trying to, to get in there. Also with us on Zoom now is Judge Gregory Mize. He's a judicial fellow at the National Center for State Courts and Center for Jury Studies. He also teaches at Georgetown Law School. Judge Mize, thank you for your patience. We've, get, we've been getting a lot of calls, but we wanted to talk with you about uh, some of the models that other states are thinking about when we think about jury selection. Judge Mize, are you still with us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. So when we think about um, what Connecticut is doing with this task force, uh, they've uh, one of the recommendations uh, modeled after Washington state. Can you give us an idea of, of how Connecticut stacks up with some conversations that are happening in other states with jury selection and racial bias? Uh, happy to do so. Um, as was indicated, Washington state was the first uh, court system to examine uh, jury selection process uh, and its effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in uh, diminishing improper discrimination based on race, gender, or ethnicity. Uh, After Washington State uh, created its task force and eventually a new rule, uh, California established a a task force. Their, Their work product is not completed yet, uh, we know about Connecticut, and now just last week, Arizona created a task force uh, to examine discrimination in jury selection and how to address that. Uh, on a broader scope, though, um, beyond just uh, improper discrimination in jury selection, uh, states have uh, been studying other reforms in other parts of trial by jury. And Arizona was the, uh, so to speak, the generator of all jury reform beginning in the 1990s 
when it created a commission and then that commission pr produced a juror bill of rights and a series of rules for criminal and civil jury trials that the Arizona Supreme Court adopted uh, within six months of the recommendation. By last count, there are 38 states that have created some form of uh, jury study commission looking at how things are done and what needs to be improved. In 2005, the American Bar Association created the American Jury Project, and that led to the adoption by the Board of Governors of the, of the American Bar Association of Principles for Juries and Jury Trials. And there uh, is set forth the gold standards for how to summons jurors, how to conduct uh, proper and effective jury selection, how to present evidence to a jury and give jurors the tools to, to understand evidence better, to be able to ask questions of witnesses that of matters that they don't understand or is not clear, how to conduct better jury deliberations, uh, more effective jury deliberations, uh, the whole gamut from summoning to rendering of a verdict. And I want to add that, uh, just one thing that the United States Supreme Court, uh, another like Batson weighty decision was Duran versus Missouri. And the Supreme Court has said that all juries have to be selected from a pool of citizens that represent a fair cross-section of the community of that jurisdiction. And that's, uh, you know, a, uh, a very um, a bright line that all judges and lawyers and court systems have to observe. We have to have representative juries. You mentioned these different states and a lot of the work that's being done uh, to study this, but uh, are there examples of you are actually seeing representation change on these jurors? Like what is New York State doing as maybe an example for, for Connecticut? Well, you might be referencing, um, they haven't had a commission like Connecticut to deal with this discrimination in jury selection, but New York State and other states recognized um, in light of the cross-section uh, requirement, the representative requirement that the Supreme Court mandated, many states had occupational exemptions. And New York was notorious for having dozens of occupations that uh, automatically uh, excluded someone from being a juror. It's law enforcement, healthcare professionals, uh, firefighters, um, uh, lawyers, it, it, just a, a laundry list. And there were some, I can't remember all of them. It, it would be surprising, you know, some of them that came up. This is not one of them, but as detailed as maybe a shoe repairman. Uh, and uh, an enlightened chief justice in New York uh, had the state legislature ex uh, remove all occupational uh, e exclusions, uh, exemptions from jury service. This, of course, leads to more people being summoned and a lawyer in the in the jury uh, veneer panel it can be on a jury in a matter of fact in our jurisdiction here in the district of columbia we judges are eligible to serve on jury trials and several of my colleagues have been on criminal cases in uh, the district of columbia and this makes the the jury uh, more representative
It's good to hear all the work that's being done on this issue, uh, Chief Justice uh, Robinson. You know, I am. I did want to ask you when we think about some of the recommendations of the Connecticut Task Force, allowing again uh, felons to sit on a jury and not wait for the seven-year period, or permitting green card holders. Not everyone thinks that's a good idea. How do you respond to that? Well, and I've seen that. Um, actually, one of the the, the uh, newspaper articles I saw was against um, having uh, felons sit on juries. But as you said, it's a bar after seven, uh, up to seven years. It's not that they can't sit on, on juries at all. The other thing is that you are entitled to a jury of your peers, and that includes people who have been convicted of crimes. The wonderful thing about Connecticut is we have individual voir dire, and so the attorneys get to question each juror. And they get to determine whether the person is a good fit for that juror, uh, that trial. And then we have various checks and balances. Now, those checks and balances haven't been working as well as we want them to. And that's why we have this jury task force. But there's an entire system that's set up that we're going to improve um, that will uh, protect people's rights, including the rights of the juror. So it's, it's not just the defendant's rights, the party's rights. It's the public rights. It's, it's the jury, uh, the juror's rights. Um, that have to protect in these matters. And I want to see a system where everybody, um, it, as many people as possible, are eligible to do jury duty and that the lawyers and the litigants will then start to have a, a fair cross-section of society to judge their case. The pandemic certainly has halted many things, including jury trials in the state of Connecticut. And so, again, this this report from the task force came out earlier this year. How soon can you implement some of these recommendations, Justice Robinson? Oh, we've already started with that. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a legislature. Um, they're, they're right across the street physically, but I'm very lucky to have them um, be so excited about doing this kind of work. We immediately put a proposed bill together and, and, and our external affairs people, including Melissa Farley, uh, made sure that that went over and the legislature is considering legislative changes right now. The other changes that we're making, we've been making in the branch all along, but I've expedited a lot of those um, and we're moving forward off with everything. So it's a holistic approach and we've been able to do it. It's unfortunate we haven't had been able to get jury trials yet. We're hoping to have them pretty soon, a couple of months, I hope. Uh, jury trials are a very important part of our system, but we want to make sure that people are safe, um, the stakeholders, the defendants, the the public at large, when they use our services. And so we're going to get there. You know, with the vaccinations ramping up and in Connecticut after April 5th, I believe, uh, people over the age of 16 will be able to have the, the coronavirus vaccine. And I'm hoping to be back up to uh, what I'll call our new normal. Um, and I'm saying new normal because the old normal had some problems. Um, that I don't want to go back to. We have an opportunity to fix those and, and move forward. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Matthew from New Haven uh, wanted to ask what the task force is doing to have more minorities find careers on the court. He feels like it's a similar problem to the police force in his city, where many police are from the suburbs. And Matthew says that part of the solution would be creating tracks for more people to get into the field. What's your take, Justice Robinson? Oh, he, he's right. And we've been working on that. Um, one of my priorities as chief is to build those pipelines that we need to build in order to have uh, more people, uh, a broader base of community, come in to do things uh, uh, in the judicial branch. We literally hire 
hundreds, if not thousands of attorneys. Um, so there's a lot of jobs that people don't even know about. Um, last night, uh, I participated in a Civics First program, which was a mock trial program for high school students. And uh, my old alma mater, West Hill High School, made it to the finals. It was almost a Cinderella victory, um, but they lost to Weston. A very close battle, but it was it was wonderful to watch these young people engage in this civic process. So um, we're actually taking an active look at this, and we're starting. I've I've been to even uh, kindergartens uh, and talking to children at elementary school just to let them know that the the branch exists and that even people who look like me um, should be there, and uh, we can do well in the society. Uh, America is a great country of, of many opportunities. Uh, we just need, need to make sure that people know those opportunities are there. Um, we run out of time to take more calls. It's been an interesting hour. We hope to have you back again, uh, Chief Justice Richard Robinson. We appreciate your time today. My pleasure. I'd, I'd be glad to be back. And as, as I told you before, I'm a big fan of yours. I was very nervous to do this. <laughs> And we thank you again for coming on. And of course, Judge Gregory Mize, a judicial fellow at the National Center for State Courts. Thank you for that perspective on what's happening in other states. We appreciate your time as well. Thank you for having me. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Special thanks to Gene Almatruda. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You can download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Listen anytime, not just live at nine. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>